So this is awesome. I think that I always feel incredibly grateful when the guest for a really important topic also happens to be someone I'm friends with. Like, what are the chances? How amazing is that? So Kat, thank you so much for being here. This is arguably the most important episode we've done and, and will ever do on this topic. So yeah, thank you so much for coming in today to, to talk about this. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. So let's get into it. I mean, tell us a little bit about your backstory and your journey and therefore the, the topic that we'll be getting into today. All right. Um, my story. Let's start with where I'm at now and then work backwards. Um, so I'm an occupational therapist and behavioral therapist, and I specialize specifically with binge eating disorder. So I am a, I guess we would call it a nomad. Um, I work solely online. I'm based out of New York City um, with my client base mainly being in the United States. Um, and I also get the opportunity to coach as well, one-on-one um, personal training with people as well when I'm you know, there in New York. In terms of how I've gotten to this position, um, a lot of it comes from my own personal story. Um, I have experienced seven eating disorders in my time. Um, I'm completely recovered from all of them. I'm at about four years recovered from binge eating disorder, which is the one that lasted the longest, about 20 years of my life actually. Um, and in terms of what I've created and, and the business macros, muscles, mindset, um, it's sort of been things that I learned from other therapy techniques that didn't work. And what I've developed over the past, I've been doing this for 15 years, but the last seven years in particular is basically using techniques that work on the day-to-day for people. And a lot of it comes down to understanding the basics of neuropsych, neuroscience, and the functioning of the brain. And what that also means is teaching people how to manage habits, behaviors, and language in particular. So what I've developed and created over the past seven years and you know why the business has been so successful is the type of therapy that I take people through isn't your typical cognitive behavioral therapy, um, which for me, when I went through that process, didn't work. Um, You know, I tried various types of therapies to try and get through binge eating disorder and nothing really worked until I started to understand the concept of the brain, the understanding of the impact of language, the impact of our environment, the impact of the context of the 21st century and once I was able to take myself through that process or processes I should say I've been able to find tools and techniques that have helped me and then have been able to find tools and techniques that help hundreds of other people Um, and for each person it's different you know one thing works for one person it might not work for the other so over the past seven years in particular that's what I have been building up Um, and I'm currently studying my um, studying medical neuroscience through Duke University. So I'm continuously trying to pursue, okay, how does the brain really impact our behaviours? And that's pretty much what I've been teaching people over the past seven years. Yeah, so cool. I love hearing that story and obviously how successful the business is and and where you are now, the fact you're fully obviously recovered is is incredible. Um, But let's go back a little bit, if that's all right. I mean, just give the the listeners and viewers a little bit more insight into like maybe what those eating disorders were, if if that's okay. And and so that people can see if they can relate or not, like maybe what were some of those triggers or environmental causes? Mm. So 
I guess if we look at all of them, the binge eating disorder for me was the worst and it was the longest. Um, and I can explain how that sort of impacted my life later on. But um, binge eating disorder basically carried from the age of nine to 28. Um, so it was a really big chunk of my life. And throughout that period of time, it swayed from what we call mild to severe, depending on what my situation was at the time or uh, where I was at in life and, you know, various factors. So the binge eating disorder was kind of always there. Um, but essentially what happened when I was about 18, maybe 17, actually, it was 17 because I had a fake ID and I started like going out. I was with a different group of friends and stuff like that is I became much more conscious of my appearance. I had stopped competitive sports. So I was a state gymnast and I had stopped that. And I noticed quite quickly you know, my body changing, um, you know, I was more conscious about, oh, I'm going out, I'm like meeting people and all this kind of stuff. So essentially the first eating disorder I had was actually something called drunkorexia, which is basically when you understand the concept of calories and what you would do is not eat to save your calories for alcohol. So that was actually a really pivoting point when alcohol kind of came into my life at 17 because it it spiraled off a whole lot of other things. So my first eating disorder was drunkorexia. Um, that slowly moved into exercise bulimia. Um, and exercise bulimia is essentially tracking your calories to a very like um, obsessive point and then exercising them all off. So essentially a type of purging without, um, you know, vomiting or anything like that. It's purging in another way, like you're over-exercising. That then spun very quickly into anorexia. Um, and at this point in time, I had complete insight into what I was going through, which made it difficult because I didn't know how to get out of it and I didn't have support systems to help me get out of it. But it, I was also very lucky because there's some people that don't have that insight. So, for instance, I was actually studying psych at uni at that time and we were going through this kind of stuff and I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be really sick. Like I know what's happening. Um, and that period fortunately was only three months. Um, and I got down to a very, very low body weight. I was only like 38 kilos. So really, really light, really very, very sick. Um, you know, and it took me there was this morning where I basically I woke up and like I was so weak that I fell. I fell down in my bedroom and I was like, I don't know what to do. Um, and at that point I called an Australian support line, um, the Butterfly Foundation. And they basically when I rang, the first thing this person asked was like, how can we help? And I was like, you're the only person that's ever asked me that in the past like six months. And from there she kind of guided me how to get up. And it was just this mental shift where I was like, if I don't, start eating properly my sisters aren't going to have a younger sister and my mum and dad aren't going to have a third daughter and that's basically what went through my head um so coming out of that I didn't have therapy or support um in the right way I should say obviously my family was there to support as the best they could um but it then spun out to binge eating disorder so that by that point it was now my fourth eating disorder and it was like I didn't know how to go from eating nothing without than just like overeating. Um, so that, you know, went through phases through that time. Um, 
a few years later, you know, that was still going on. I then developed something called orthorexia, which we see very, very common now, um, particularly in the fitness industry. And that's essentially where people will choose to not eat certain food groups because they have this concept of clean and junk. And what they'll do is they'll cut out any food or restrict food groups that they deem bad. And again, for me, I was lucky that period didn't last very long. It was actually very annoying to cut out food groups. Um, But it is something that is very, very common and it can very easily fall into a comorbidity of binge eating disorder because it's, it is a restriction. And then a lot of people, when they feel restricted, end up, you know, at some point basically giving in. Um, I then also developed throughout that period, specifically around the anorexia, something called food-induced depression, which is basically when you haven't got enough calories in your system, um, you know, your brain is lacking its nutrients and, you know, I was, I was depressed. I was really down um, for multiple reasons. And then, where are we at? This is seven. (laughs) The final eating disorder, it doesn't actually classify as eating disorder. Um, I just kind of, I do group it in there and I shouldn't, but I experienced body dysmorphia for a very long period of time. And that probably was the exact same amount of period of time that the binge eating was. So from a very young age, from like eight or nine to 28, 29. Um, and as the binge eating got worse, the body dysmorphia would got, got worse. So often, you know, they tie into each other. It would be like, if I had a binge, I would then be like, okay, well now I hate myself. So I'm going to wear really big clothing. I don't want anyone to see me. I wouldn't go out socially. And it was just, the two of those combined was just like, social disaster, physical disaster, financial disaster, sexual disaster. Like I just couldn't, when it was severe, I just couldn't do things. Like I literally couldn't do things. So, you know, each eating disorder has its own symptoms and its own um, factors that can impact you. Um, But for me, knowing how frequent binge eating happens me or for me at that time but I can see it in other people is why I was like this is the disorder that needs more care more support and when we look at eating disorders globally binge eating disorder actually accounts for 47 percent of all eating disorders and it's really difficult to be able to explain that to people that haven't experienced it because they're like oh it's gluttony oh just stop eating and it's like you don't understand how much it impacts someone's life Um, you know, like I said, all those factors people don't think about, like financially, if you can't control your food intake, you can just go nuts at Coles or Woolworths or whatever the supermarkets are here, you know, like, and that's just one tiny little thing. The impact it had socially for me, you know, through my mid twenties, like I didn't date for years. Like I was like a, like, cause I just couldn't, cause I was like, I'm a mess of a human, like, you know, so yeah, binge eating disorder is, it's a rough time. Hey, it's Leo here. Just very quickly interrupting this podcast episode to share with you a really exciting announcement. The Nexus team are now available to take on new one-on-one online nutrition clients. So if you're interested in working with myself or anyone on the team for your nutrition, health or body composition based goals, then follow the link in the show notes and you can see all of the information on what that might look like to work with us. So 
Yeah, it's amazing to see how how far you've how far you've come. Yeah, I love myself now. I'm like <laughs> little joyful little bean. Yeah. And I think obviously as you're saying that, I'm thinking of like the content you put out and how you coach, and it's obviously literally just one end of the spectrum to the other now, which which is incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, before we get into kind of like the difference between binge eating and and disordered eating, when you were listing off some of those eating disorders, I was kind of thinking like, wow, like these don't sound too uncommon. Like I know quite a few people that kind of do these behaviours. Would would it be correct to kind of say that like some of these eating disorders like are maybe underdiagnosed and actually quite normalised now, but because they maybe are a little bit normalised, people aren't really viewing them as, as eating disorders? A hundred percent, particularly the orthorexia. Um, and I feel like that is something that over the years with the influence of social media has impacted more and more people negatively. And when we look at binge eating disorder in particular, one of you know, I've got a couple of concepts that I always cover and language is one of them. It's one of the main things that I cover. And when we look at the language through internet, magazines, TV, we are fed words like clean and junk and bad and good. And what that does is it creates this association in the brain that's basically black and white. And it's like, okay, well, we've been told this is good for us this is bad, so we have to restrict that. And this is what the girls on social media are doing to look that way. And they're feeding that us that to us. And it becomes normalised, like, oh, well, social media or these girls on Instagram or TikTok or whatever, they're so it's so easily accessible that we're constantly fed that, that it is. It becomes normalised that, oh, we can't eat that food. And the reason that we end up or the reasons behind why we end up overeating often or binging is because we've created that black and white association and we use this language of good and bad and then we restrict to the point where it's like when food is presented to us, we go overboard. And, you know, that isn't how we should be eating. And we need to, you know, part of what I do is I try to create this sustainability concept with people so people can understand, okay, there is food that's nutrient dense and there's food that's less nutrient dense. Let's try and make 80% of our day nutrient dense and then have 20% of the day less nutrient dense. So when the weekend comes around, you don't feel like you've restricted, you don't feel like there's good and bad food and you create this better association with food. So when we look at like orthorexia, which is very, very common. I definitely feel like it's something that is um, pushed to the wayside and a lot of people don't know about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, do you think it's useful if more people do understand and appreciate that it is an eating disorder? Does that help to maybe like show people, yeah, actually this is something that's not normal and I need some help here? Yeah, I do. And I do think it would be quite hard and it's probably why it feels normalised, is it's hard to approach that because what these people think they're doing is promoting, you know, a healthy lifestyle. And and sure, it's great to be able to promote, you know, eating nutrient-dense foods, but by telling someone this, this and this is bad, you might not be doing them a favour. You might be doing the complete opposite where it ends up spinning out into binge eating disorder. And from the people that I work with or what I've experienced working with people for the past five, you know, to seven years... That's part of the problem. Yeah. The the alcohol one was interesting. Uh, I certainly had a little phase of, of doing that. Um, and yeah, I'd never really considered that being, being an eating disorder before. Yeah, it is um, in the DSM um, 
there. It's, you know, it's, it is an eating disorder. It's not something people would often hear about or consider. And, um, you know, at the time when I was doing that, I was like, this doesn't, I'm doing the wrong thing. Like I, I've always had insight into it. Um, but it was purely just like, I'm just not going to eat. I would have like 40 calorie cup of soups at work to be able to like go crazy on cruises. <laughs> and also like the other thing that did stem from that, which happens for a lot of people is the comorbid- comorbidity of binging afterwards where you've drunk alcohol, you lose a lot of the ability to control your prefrontal cortex and then you overeat. So for me, four years ago, I just made the conscious decision that I was like, anything that can stop me from binging, I'm cutting out of my life. And I haven't drunk alcohol since. So, you know, I've been dry for four years. And not to say that I had an issue with alcohol through my 20s. Um, I didn't really drink that much anyway, but it was something that I knew could spin off overeating. So I just cut it out. Yeah, that's fantastic. Mm. I think more people need to at least consider the option of going alcohol free. It's a conversation I've had with a few clients recently and they were like, it just wasn't even on my radar. And I was like, mm. let's explore it as an option. <laughs> yeah. Um, because it should be a, an option that's on the table. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, alcohol, it can change so many things for people in terms of not just their general demeanour, but when we look at the brain, we have it, we look at it in two parts, simply. We have an upper brain and a lower brain. The upper brain is basically our control system. It's us, it's who we are, it's our higher self, it's what we action. The lower brain, or the reptilian brain as some people refer as it, as it to, is basically our primal instincts. It's there to say, hey, we want comfort, we want pleasure, um, we're always seeking survival. When we look at binging and binge eating disorder, one of the things that I teach people is this concept because if we can differentiate ourselves from the lower brain and that urge that's being sent out, we have a lot more control. If we can say, hey, my lower brain is telling me that I want food right now because it's cold and that's just a survival instinct, you have a lot more control of being able to portion your plate out. When alcohol comes into the system, we have a lot less control over our prefrontal cortex. We don't have the ability to control our upper brain like we do when we're sober. It becomes much easier to give in to the lower brain saying like, I'm really tired. And when we're tired, our hormones change and it sends a signal to the lower brain that says, hey, let's eat so we can get some more energy. Now, if you're in a state where you've drunk alcohol, you're not going to be able to control your upper brain and say, actually... The real reason <laughs> that I'm getting these signals is because I've been out really late and I'm, I, I've drunk alcohol and now my brain's saying I'm really tired. We give into it. We just give into the lower brain and we end up overeating or we aren't conscious of the choices that we make because we don't have the ability to control ourselves as we do when we're sober. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. Mm. How do you approach alcohol with a, with a client? Is it something that you're like, you know, if you tick these boxes in terms of eating disorders that you have, is it just a kind of a black and white rule that you have in terms of alcohol being cut out or like, how do you approach that? No, I don't ever cut it out for people. Um, what I do is I teach them the concept of um, macronutrients, understanding, okay, this is what your body needs in terms of protein, fats and carbs. And if we look at alcohol, I'll 
basically tell them like we're going to look at it as a carb for your your system. So if you've got a X amount of carbs to eat in a day, just know that alcohol is going to take up X amount and that only leaves you with a certain amount to then have from food. And often, actually not often, I'm going to say 98% of the time when people work with me, from understanding that concept, they will reduce the alcohol intake because they would much prefer to have their calories come from food. The other thing is over the period of time that people will work with me, they they begin to understand that concept of the upper and lower brain, the difference that alcohol can make. And then, you know, when they're doing their feedback or we're having our chats, they'll be like, you know what, I noticed that when I had alcohol, I ended up eating more salty food and then the next day I didn't feel as good. And it's almost like this progression of reducing alcohol intake without me really doing anything. Um, and I would say pretty much every person that I work with that ends up happening. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. No, that was really good. I know that was a little bit of a tangent from uh, the, the main topic today, but that, that was really insightful. So going back to kind of disordered eating and, and binge eating, I mean, yeah. What, what is the difference between those two? How does someone know maybe what category they fall into? So disordered eating, um, is different from eating disorders. So I guess we can look at it at three things. So Disordered eating is more so having behaviors where you are conscious about your food and your body image. So it's more so you might meet someone that is constantly yo-yo dieting or they're constantly um, trying to find a different exercise routine or this week they're cutting out this and that. That comes under the umbrella of disordered eating. When it turns into an eating disorder is when there's other factors impacting them. So that means there's effect on them socially, mentally, physically, um, psychologically, sexually or financially. That's where it starts to differentiate. So someone might start with, okay, they're dieting this week, have a bit of a break, they diet again in a few weeks. That might end up then becoming something like orthorexia where they become obsessed with actually this diet, I'm cutting out this food group and they're doing it for a longer period of time and then it affects them because socially they can't go out for dinner. So it's almost like for a lot of people, the disordered eating habits can become an eating disorder. Um, binge eating disorder, like I said, it, it accounts for 47% of all eating disorders globally. There are specific characteristics that will pop you into that that um, diagnosis. Now, the main things are you will overeat to a, a point where you feel like you've lost control. So it feels like you can't stop. The second point is that it generally happens within a short period of time. So two hours, that's generally how we classify it. So it's almost like, um, say you're on the couch, you get up, you eat, you go back to the couch, you eat, you go back to the couch. All of that happens within a two hour period. And by that time you've eaten the whole thing of ice cream. The third characteristic is that there is an impact mentally on you. And what I mean by that is that you are either experiencing shame, guilt, anxiety, or anger with the fact that you've done it, which means that you will feel shame that you've overeaten. It'll mean that you potentially feel anxious about going out to eat with your friends because You've either overeaten and you feel like bad or you're scared that it's going to happen again. Or there is the concept where you are telling yourself, you know what, it's okay, I'm just going to start again tomorrow. And then it happens again a few days later. The fourth characteristic 
is that it happens on a weekly basis, at least once a week for a period of three months. From there, we then have a sliding scale of where you fall onto it. So what we would say is mild binge eating disorder is when you have one episode a week. So let's say for someone it's like one day on the weekend where they've lost control, um, there's the physiological effects of extreme bloating, distension in the stomach, um, you can feel your heart racing, it's harder to breathe, you don't sleep as well, you wake up with a dry mouth um, and then the next day you feel shame, you feel guilt, maybe there's another impact where it's like actually I can't go to work because I feel this sick or I spent a lot of money on food last night or I don't want to go on this date because I'm so bloated and gross, whatever it might be. From there, we look at moderate, which is basically four to seven episodes a week, which is a lot. And then we have what we call extreme or severe, which is 14 episodes a week. So when I look at it in my like life cycle, for the most part, it was generally mild, but there was periods between the ages of 24 and 27 where it was extreme. So it was like, I would be binging 14 times at least a week. And if I look back at my calendar from um, 2015, that's, that's when it was extreme, in February I had little crosses on every day bar two. So I basically binged 26 out of the 28 days and that's where it's like that is an extreme eating disorder and within that month I put on about 10 kilos or something like that. So that's kind of where you are in the ranges and when we look at like when I have a client come in and I'll you know take them through the process of like where I think they are on the scale um you know my main goal is a to educate them on what it is to make sure that they feel like they can speak to me at any point in time because I felt like I never had that with anyone when I was going through it um I take them through the five separate um, you know, concepts of learning that help you get over binge eating disorder. And then my main goal obviously is abstinence from binge eating. And for the most part, you know, I've had a really long, I've very good client retention. Um, and for most people within the first six to 12 months, I could say that they've either completely abstained or they're back from say severe to mild. And that is just massive to be able to do in 12 months or three months for some people. I'm like, man, it took me 20 years and you're doing it in three months. Like, it's really awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. You should be really, really proud of that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's really, really, it's awesome. And then people stay with me to continue learning. And that's part of why I'm like, okay, I need to continue going to university. I need to continue learning about the brain because there's so many factors of life where we're going to have to pivot and I'm going to have to help people, you know, and support people through who knows what, the COVID, that was such a pivot. Like everyone went from working to then being back in their houses and I was like, I'm going to have to work out a whole set of new tools for people to manage not binge eating in their house. Yeah. So, I think um, that, that would be a great point to get into in a, in, a, in a minute, kind of COVID specifically, if you are still working from home a little bit more. Um, I know you've just kind of touched on it there a few minutes ago in terms of like, where would we start? But obviously I'm hearing this thinking, wow, definitely sounds potentially very overwhelming for someone. I mean, I imagine one obvious step is, of course, going to be to reach out to someone, get some support, get some 
yeah some guidance um but other than that like how would you recommend someone starts to approach this so if you're like yeah this sounds like me but i'm maybe not quite ready to reach out to someone and have some external support yet or have that conversation but you want to maybe feel like you're taking a step in the right direction where would you recommend that person starts you know what this was this is why it's hard with binge eating disorder because the tools and resources out there there is fair and few um I would honestly recommend listening to some of my other podcasts and I have sent those to people that don't feel like they know enough or they feel like they can't take that next step just yet. But just to give them the understanding of, hey, this is what it is. There is help. You can learn about it in this way, in this way. So that's one starting point. I would also then consider um, a couple of books as a resource the ones that help me or help me realize actually this isn't me it's my brain um the power of habit by charles duhigg um was a book that basically changed my life because i understood the concept of routine and behaviors and how that relates to the brain and there's a very big correlation between what we call a habit loop and binge eating disorder or any kind of addiction. And that's one of the things that, you know, I teach people. Um, so there's that book. I would also recommend, um, there's a podcast called brain over binge. The first five episodes, um, of that series is excellent. Um, someone who has experienced like a very similar sort of, um, I guess, experience with binge eating disorder to myself, someone who struggled for a very long time and then finally was like, actually, let's learn about the brain and see how this impacts. And that podcast is really, really useful. Um, and the other book that I would recommend, it's by four people, so I don't know them all off the top of my head, but it's a book called You Are Not Your Brain. And it's a really good insight into understanding the basics of brain function, habit loops, the upper and lower brain, how stress impacts us, how sleep impacts us. Um, and, you know, it's got tools and resources in it that you can work through without having to like show a therapist or whatever, like you're kind of going at it at your own pace. Yeah, that's really useful. Thank you. I'll check some of those out. You said something to me once. I'll never forget it. Uh -oh. It was no, it was great. I might I might get the way you swapped the habits the wrong way around. But we were working in a cafe on the soy and you'd just done a call and this woman was coming home from work and I think she was binging in the evening. And you asked her, like, talk me through from the moment you like park your car, like talk me through step by step what what that routine is that you do when you go into the house you know what i'm about to say don't yeah, you go on. and you said to me that you told her okay you like you know she she told you what that routine was and you're like okay i'm you correct me if i'm wrong with exactly what you said but you were like i told her to walk upstairs and put her bag that she takes for work for the day into the bathroom instead and just like i was like what <laughs> and i was like the bag in the bar I was like focusing on the bag in the bathroom and I was like I'm so confused I don't get it cat like educate me I'm like 21 at this point you know what I, mean? I, I don't know much about this so I'm just like what what is it about the bathroom that's useful for and you're like it's not about the bathroom Leo and I was like <laughs> I was like well, well, well what is it then and you were like it's about breaking that habit that pattern and you're obviously going to be able to explain that yep. better than better than me okay so when we look at resources or tools to help people get over binge eating disorder. The five things that I look at are habit loops. We look at language. We look at the upper and lower brain. We look at neuroplasticity and we look at mindfulness. So they're the five things. Now, depending where someone is, and you've also got to consider therapy 
is a long period of time, so I don't do this all at once. But depending where someone is, I will say, okay, I think this tool is what is going to work for you first. Now, for most people, that is habit loops and understanding that in our life cycle or in our day-to-day, we will have something that is called a cue, right? And a cue is something that will lead us to a behavior and then that behavior leads us to a reward. Now, the cue can be something that is physical, psychological, it can be a, something that is emotional for a lot of people. It can be something like a dream. It can be something like smell. It can be anything. Now, this cue, and I'm going to do, let's use a simple one. Um, I'm going to use the concept of waking up in the morning, having a coffee, right? So the cue for this person is they've woken up, right? Their cue is the wake up. It's morning. So what they do is they then have a behavior and the behavior is making a coffee. They drink the coffee. The reward is various things. It's like, oh, this is nice and warm. This is delicious. It's waking me up. Okay. From there, that reward system is a release of dopamine into the brain. Now, when dopamine is released into the brain, it creates a strong link to whatever the cue is, which means it makes it much easier to then do that again. And that's basically the formation in the most simplest of ways of how a habit is formed. So when this, this woman, I know exactly who you're talking about. When this woman was speaking to me, I asked her, what is your day to day like? And why do you binge specifically on a Friday? Like, what is it? So she would say she would get up in the morning She would do what she normally does, blah, 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 go to work, whatever. Now for her, the cue was it being Friday. It was literally the fact that it was Friday night. So she would come home the same way from work. I asked her about this. She would drive the same way from work. She would park in the exact same spot. She would get into the elevator. She would go into her apartment. She would put her bag down, her keys on the spot. She would um, shower. And then by that point, she would be like, I'm hungry. And what would happen is rather than preparing herself dinner, she would snack and then she would sit on her couch and then she would go back and snack more and more and more. And it would end up being a constant routine. And the reward for her at the period of time was, okay, this food is good. um, I feel great, whatever. There's a release of dopamine into the system. And that means that the next time or the next Friday that happens, she's more inclined to do it again. But the brain can't differentiate whether or not dopamine release is from something that is good for us or something that is bad, which is when addiction starts to form. So for instance, sure, she had a couple of chocolates and like dopamine's released, she feels all right, but it got to the point where it was binging and then she didn't feel all right. She had the feelings of shame. She had feelings of guilt. She was putting on weight. She didn't want to go out socially. The brain couldn't differentiate that. It can't. There's there's this dopamine release and it's like, all things are well and good because I've released this. So for her, once I was able to explain like, okay, this is the concept of a habit loop. What we need to do now is look at pattern interrupts and pattern interrupts are something that are really, really useful for people going through addiction or um, something like binge eating disorder, because it's a really simple tool that basically breaks up the concept of the cue to the behavior So for this lady, for instance, what I said to her was like, I'm going to get you to do your normal day-to-day on a Friday, but 
what you're going to do is you're going to drive home a completely different way. You're going to park in a very different spot. You're going to walk up the stairs. And when you get into the house, you're going to put your bag in the bathroom. And she was like, why? That makes no sense. I was like, exactly. (laughs) You were completely shaking up the consistent routine. So she did that. What ended up happening was she was she basically confused herself. <laughs> she put the bag in um, the bathroom, she showered, and then when she went to the kitchen, she was aware that things felt different. So at that point, I'd also said, message me when you do it. So I added in a second pattern interrupt, which was basically giving her accountability. And at that point, I was like, hey, I want you to go and I can't actually remember, make dinner or something, whatever it was. So if you think about habit loops, you're always thinking of it as, okay, we've got to start A, you're getting to point B, and it makes you have a release of C, which is the dopamine. What we try to do is shake up A to B and make it go from A to D, and then there's no C at all. There's no B, there's no C. And for me, one of the techniques that I used when my binging was severe um, I had a very similar concept where I'd like get up, I'd go to the freezer, I'd snack on stuff, I'd sit back down. I said, what is a pattern interrupt that's just going to confuse myself? I got up and I did, like got up, went towards the freezer and I went and did burpees, four or five burpees and then sat back down. I was like, that was so weird. I'm so glad no one's around. <laughs> but Tell it, me you're a crossfit. <laughs> Tell me you're a crossfit. <laughs> but it completely shook up the routine. And even though sometimes it doesn't work, it's this concept of understanding, okay, it's a habit loop. Like it's a loop and I know that I can break it. And that's when we can lead into like, okay, now let's talk about the upper brain and how much control you have. So it's all these five things end up like coming in to twine. That's so cool. It's funny you remember that. That's so cool. I I really, really remember it because I just remember being like quite, yeah, quite confused. I think obviously – you know, at 21, whilst I fully appreciated that there was a very large psychological aspect to dieting and nutrition, and I didn't have a traditional route into the industry myself, I was still relatively inexperienced with that side of things. So I just remember being, I remember just hearing it and being like, okay, there's a whole world here of stuff I need to learn. And just, yeah, it's something that I've used with clients ever, ever since. But yeah, it was, yeah, that was from that conversation. So yeah. Yeah. Pattern interrupts are a tool that I would say for about 90% of people um, experiencing binge eating disorder, it will be useful. Mm. There's a lot of tools that don't work for people. Some things that work for me won't work for others and vice versa. Um, but that one in particular is is a really good starting spot. And I mean, it, it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds relatively straightforward. You need to spend a little bit of time having some self-awareness to kind of identify what the pattern is, yeah. e.g. Friday, and then you just change the routine which you, the way you've done it there it sounded a little bit random. It, it doesn't seem like there was a particular thought process as to like how or why you were changing it. It's just changing it. So that should be relatively straightforward for people to give a try by themselves. Yeah. And I mean, it can be difficult when you're in a period where it's severe, like you really do have to look at the whole day. Like if you're noticing that it is constantly on, you know, one particular day and it's like, why do I keep doing this? For me, when I lived in Sydney, um, I had to really break down my, my day and I realized it was as soon as I got up. So basically what would happen is I would get up in the morning and in front of me, I had double mirrors, like my, my cupboard had like big mirrors on it. And as soon as I got up, I was basically like, ugh, 
I look gross. I'm going to wear a really big T-shirt today. Um, And that little part, that one minute thought process and self-talk, and this is where language comes in, that self-talk would end up being the cue. And then later in the day, because I would have been like, oh, I look like shit this morning anyway, whatever, Mm. I would go into a binge. The reward would be like, oh, I feel better because I've eaten. But, you know, the dopamine's gone up. But I also then went into this concept of self-talk where like, I'll start tomorrow. I'll diet down from tomorrow. So what I had to do was I, once I realized, oh my gosh, it's my self-talk is the cue of getting up in the morning. I covered the mirrors with black tarp. So when I got up in the morning, I didn't see myself and I purposely went and changed in the bathroom. So I only had from neck up Um, and that little shift of not having negative self-talk made a difference. And it was these little things over time that I would build on, build on, build on that helped me recover completely. That's so that's so interesting. And what that's actually done is that's reminded me of when I did contest prep when I was 19 and massively binged afterwards, put on like 30 pounds in 10 days. No, obviously drugs involved in that. I was 19. But despite that, obviously skewed my estrogen testosterone ratio so much to the point where like I had really sore nipples. Like that is how screwed I was internally post-show, wow. right? Um, like really sore, like t-shirt rubbing, like sore. So I without really realizing it at the level you just described there had that exact same pattern with a mirror and i'm laughing because i took this uh like you know what would you call them like you know like uh lengthways mirror like a long one from like you, you know your feet to your head and i took that downstairs and i turned it rather than vertical horizontal and put it on the wall so that i could only see from like the shoulders up yeah. um so anyway yeah that's just yeah relating relating to that there so the reason i really love that you said that is i think a lot of people and coaches in particular maybe are bad for this too they like okay i'm starting my health and fitness journey they don't quite appreciate that that needs to look different. So for some people that is cool. I can go into a calorie deficit. I have the prerequisites for that and I'm going to diet for a bit of fat loss. For someone else, like the type of person that we're describing here that maybe wants to achieve fat loss, they maybe don't have the prerequisites to go into a calorie deficit. But what does everyone do when they start their health and fitness journey? They grab, they jump on the scales and they grab a starting scale weight. They grab some starting progress photos and maybe they grab some starting measurements because that's just like what you're told to do in the fitness industry, right? Because the whole mm. fitness industry really comes at it from the perspective of bodybuilding. And of course, that's therefore a, you know, a valid way of starting that journey. Um, but yeah, I think if, for people listening, knowing that you don't necessarily need to do that, and for a lot of people probably shouldn't do that, is actually probably very, very valuable. Yeah, I mean, when I intake someone, for example, like I said, I'll work out exactly where they are on the spectrum and what I think is going to be the most useful for them tool-wise. The first month... I don't do any therapy. I'm teaching them how to understand the concept of macronutrients. I'm usually taking someone through what we call the reverse dieting phase. So they are actually eating enough. Um, And I'm using the techniques within that first sort of month about language. So we're looking at nutrient dense foods being 80% of your day and 20% less nutrient dense. So I don't, I don't aim to overwhelm someone because there is so much to, you know, the recovery process and there's so many tools and techniques. But that first month, I'm just trying to make sure that people are able to understand that it's as basic as 80-20. And this is gonna, this first concept of understanding 80% of your day nutrient dense, 20% less nutrient dense is going to set you up for success for 
everything else that we do. Um, I don't even know how I got onto that. Oh, coaches. Yes. And that is why a lot of coaches don't have high retention rates. Um, it's why a lot of coaches, um, you know, will push out a six week program or 12 week program because they're doing what I like to say is kind of like cookie cutter and it's just like making it easy for themselves. You're just going to do this. They don't take into account someone's background history, their eating issues properly, their actual understanding about nutrients or macros or calories and stuff like that. So, you know, again, that's why my retention rate's been so long is so much of it is educational because I want people to, you know, after a year just say, cat, I don't need, I don't need you anymore. Or cat, I'm only going to do once a week check-in with you, but we're basically just doing, you know, how does my composition look? What do I need to do with my nutrients? I'm a little bit tired, you know? So it might be like a year or two of like, you know, really consistent work, but I basically want to teach, I'm coaching people to be better coaches for themselves. And I feel like in the fitness industry, it's a lot of people that are just like, I want more and more clients so I can get more and more money. And they're not really considering the health of the person that they're working with. It drives me bananas. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole different random yeah. tangent. We could, we could do a whole episode just about the, the fitness industry not being great. Um, but yeah, no, that that's really insightful. You, I believe you mentioned there was five like kind of pillars or, or, or concepts um, that you listed off. I mean, yeah, any of the other ones that you'd like to go into in a little bit more detail that you think would be useful for people to hear? Yeah, I mean, all of them are incredibly useful. Um, you know, language in particular you know, how we speak to ourselves, how we speak about food, how we learn about food has such a massive impact on our behaviours. But I guess one of the ones that is the most simple in terms of like what you could literally input from today is mindfulness. And mindfulness when we're looking at food is basically being non-judgmental with the food that you're eating. And that can be very difficult to do when you're getting fed from social media. This is clean. This is junk. This is bad. This is good, whatever. So some of the tools that can really, really help people to portion control or feel like they're more secure with, you know, 80% nutrient dense and 20% less, you know, nutrient dense is putting away all the screens when you're eating. So, Don't be distracted by your phone. Don't be distracted by the TV because the more present you are with your food, the better, A, you're going to chew, which is going to keep you fuller for longer. So you're you're generally going to eat less. And you become more aware of the sensations of food, the smell, the taste, um, the texture. That is becoming present, Right. When we are walking with food, when we are scrolling and eating, we aren't actually being mindful of the food itself. So it becomes very easy to eat and then be like, oh, I just ate. Or it can be really easy to eat and then because you haven't been mindful of chewing, you end up being like, I'm still hungry because your body hasn't taken that time to properly digest because you've just basically inhaled your food. Walking and eating is one of the worst things that you can do. It's very mindless. You're just walking around it's also like when you kind of think about it it's like it's kind of weird like you really should be sitting down so the second thing is sitting down and what you will find if you do this if you tell yourself for three days anytime I eat I'm going to sit down you're going to notice how much less you're going to eat because it's very easy to stand up in the kitchen open the fridge and eat something 
uh, pack your kids' lunch, nibble from no, their that one. yeah, nibble from their food from their lunchbox, cook dinner, but nibble. If you consciously tell yourself, actually, I have to sit every time I eat. Not only is that like, oh God, I've got to sit down, like annoying. It's again becoming mindful and present with your food. Um, you know, it's very easy to forget that you picked at all those little things throughout the day. Whereas if you are conscious of like, okay, no, if I do pick at this, I need to go and sit down. It's going to actually stop you from mm. doing that. So for someone that has, you know, overeating issues or binge eating disorder, that tool is really, really useful because it's like, oh, I didn't realize how often I do this when I'm standing up. So I have to now take it to the table to sit down and you become so much more aware of your food intake. The third thing, which is very useful at restaurants, is putting your knife and fork down between bites. So basically teaching yourself how to slow down. And again, that is to become present with your food, to also become present with who's around you. But it also helps you again, digest properly. So you're less inclined to be like, I'm still hungry. I'm going to have dessert when you might not necessarily need dessert, you know? So putting your knife and fork down for so many people is one of the biggest game changers because you're just becoming a lot more present with your people, with your food. You're becoming more mindful of what's in front of you and you're not distracted. And you're also like, oh yeah, I've actually got to chew a fair bit, you know? So really, really simple techniques. Um, and that's, yeah, probably that's what I call the fifth pillar, so mindfulness. So really, really easy way to kind of implement into your day. Yeah, I love that. I love that approach so much. I think there's two really amazing positives that come from that as well is obviously, firstly, when you focus on regulating calorie intake through kind of some of the strategies you just described, you do it as a result of you know, portion control as opposed to avoiding certain foods hmm. or restricting foods or saying that's bad I can't have it which obviously is a much healthier approach but also people's digestive health as you kind of touched on always gets so much better right you know you always I'm sure you do as well you'll get clients and they'll be like oh, I'm intolerant to this and that and it's like uh, maybe but let's let's see if we just get you actually chewing your food not eating when stressed <clears throat> so you know you're actually digesting food in, in the proper state of your nervous system and they're like yep. I'm not bloated anymore and it's like oh yeah funny that it, was, it wasn't the food it was it was your <laughs> digestive system so that's another really nice benefit for people because what happens when bloating goes down obviously body you know um also what i'm looking for like your, your overall kind of body confidence and you know happiness in, in kind of how you look obviously improves yeah absolutely absolutely cool they're really 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 good pillars are there any other specific kind of um examples of any of those that you'd like to that you'd like to explain or, or go into i think let's see i'm going on a tangent um I think the concept of language in terms of self-talk is really important as well. Um, and this is kind of the one that is probably the hardest for me to work with people because I have to really understand what they're telling themselves or what they say to themselves either as they're binging, before they're binging, during the day, after they binge. But one of the things for me that has been really useful is being able to remove myself from language that creates associations with food that are black and white like I said you know social media so for instance like over the past seven years I've really pulled back on social media I don't have Facebook I haven't had it for like 10 years um, I only follow six things on my Instagram because like I just I just don't want to be fed 
the bullshit. And when you're in the fitness industry, you're going to get fed it. You know, the algorithms, they know. So being able to reduce your social media time or reduce the time that you're on your phone looking at, you know, TikTok, Instagram and stuff like that can be really, really beneficial because you're not constantly being fed those words and you don't really realize it's happening because you see it so not like you know frequently you kind of just like whatever it's part of your day but it's like that is impacting your brain it is impacting your behavior impacting how you think about food or how you act around food without you even knowing it particularly when you wake up first thing in the morning and just before you go to bed if you're using social media at that time and you're looking at these girls on social media or these guys and you're comparing yourself you're setting yourself up for failure. You're, and sometimes you don't even know you're comparing yourself. You're just looking, you're like, fuck, this guy's on Mykonos and he looks fucking great. Yeah. You know, like that's self-talk and people don't realise that impact it can have later on in the day, you know. So like for someone, for instance, who has orthorexia, I think social media is really, really bad when you're, you have that disorder. But it's it's almost like, okay, you wake up, you look at your phone, you're seeing these girls dancing around a pizza and you're like, well, she looks great. You don't know how much of that's filtered also. But you've seen that. It's in your system. It's first thing in the morning. It's glued into your head without you even knowing it. You don't realise that later on in the day it's impacted you to think that you need to cut out some kind of food group purely because you saw that thing in the morning. So self-talk is super, super important and it comes in so many forms. And, you know, a lot of people like to meditate and journal for me, one of the things that I found really useful was literally in my journal just writing, I'm a balanced eater. As simple as that sounds, it would set me up for a day where I'd be like 80% nutrient dense, 20% less nutrient dense, and that's balanced. Whereas, you know, writing out or, you know, having your physical goals, if that's something that you're working towards, being like, I'm going to be 55 kilos by this date. That's actually really negative self-talk because you're putting yourself in a position where you feel like you're going to have to restrict or you feel like you're going to have to do something drastic to get to that point. Again, self-talk is really hard to work through and I do think if you're someone that is experiencing binge eating disorder, you should have a therapist, um, you know, someone who specialises in binge eating disorder to help you through it. But just to be aware of it, one of those simple things that you can start doing is reducing your social media time first thing in the morning and last thing at night. I love that we got onto the, the topic of social media there because that, that's really, really important. I think for anyone thinking, oh, it doesn't affect me that much. Like what people need to remember is there are people, very smart people that are paid multi six-figure salaries in these social media companies and their entire job is literally how to make social media more addictive. Yep. So like you are fighting a losing battle if you spend a surplus of time there and yeah it's actually a task that i have a lot of my clients do is i'll be like you need to unfollow one person on you know on instagram or, or whatever platform it is they mostly use awesome. and, and i'll just kind of put that as, you know some some point in the first kind of week or so obviously depending on the client and the conversations we're having and i'll be like uh, and tell me who that tell me who that account is you know like let, let me know what name it is and every now and then you'll get someone that tries to be funny and they'll be like at leo tyson too is who i unfollow and i'm like yeah good one um, <laughs> but for the most part they'll say you know and a lot of the time i've not heard of them they'll come back with some sort of influencer or some sort of celebrity that i've never heard of they'll be like yeah now you know now, now you you say that actually this person's content didn't really align with me and it did make me feel a little bit rubbish and just getting them to do one makes it seem quite easy and then typically they'll go and unfollow a bunch more 
yep. by themselves. Yep. And that's definitely a tool that I've kind of taught people as well. Mine's a little bit different where it's more so like um, usually one of the starting points is making sure you don't use your phone 30 minutes before bed. Like you're actually putting it down at a certain time um, to help regulate your nervous system, mm-hmm. to make sure that you get quality sleep, but also to make sure that you're not feeding your brain negative self-talk. Um, so I really love that you do that. That's yeah. Awesome. No, and that's that's really important too. Yeah, I get clients to do that too. Not first thing in the morning and, and unwinding mm. unwinding at night, having a nighttime routine. Um, but yeah, no, I'm glad we got into that. I think that that is so important. And again, it's a relatively simple thing to do. So if you do feel quite overwhelmed of all of this, unfollowing some social media accounts, you know, deleting the app so you actually have to search for it in the app store. That's something I did with my Instagram. Just like yeah. when you like, I put the, the knife and fork down, same kind of thing, right? Or yeah. I have to sit down to eat. For me to go on Instagram, I have to open up the app store, type in Instagram and click open. It's so not, annoying. it's yeah. not, a, yeah, I mean, it's like yeah, seven great. seconds, but I'm just like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and it just creates that, as you've said, it creates that step in between stimulus and response, right? That's where awesome. I have to go, okay, do I actually want to go on Instagram or am I just picking this up because I'm sitting here trying to do some work and I'm having a bit of a mind blank and I'm getting annoyed at myself that I can't type and I'm like, oh, let me just check Instagram. Like, no, what am I doing? Because yeah. I have to go into the app store and search for it. So I think that, yeah, li- little things like that, like are obviously just incredibly powerful and, and relatively easy to implement mm. like now. Yeah. Um, the other thing, part of why I focus on the evening first before say you know the morning is sleep has a very very big impact on our prefrontal cortex so if you have poor sleep right um which can be from you know late nights it can be from looking at blue screens right before bed essentially what happens in when when your sleep patterns are off or you have poor sleep your hormones deregulate And what that ends up happening for someone the next day when they're tired is the lower brain (laughs) sends an urge to the upper brain saying, hey, I'm tired because my hormones are off. Let's eat. When you're tired, it's much easier to give in to your upper brain and say, actually, let's just eat. So for a lot of people, I think the statistic is when you're tired, you end up eating 20% more calories than you would on a day that you're, you know, feeling pretty decent. So again, it comes down to the ability to have that control of your prefrontal cortex or being just aware of the fact that, okay, poor sleep is going to deregulate my hormones. My lower brain's going to tell my upper brain to do this, but because I'm tired, my upper brain's going to be much easier to give in. So making sure that you have good sleep is actually key to recovery, which is one of the reasons why like all my friends know, like you're not going to hear from me after 9pm. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Bye. <laughs> yeah, so important. That's just kind of, yeah, advocating for yourself, isn't it? And having those boundaries in place. Yeah. I saw something the other day. I don't remember what phrase they used, but it was kind of, it was kind of like, like evening personal time resentment where it was just like you've been so busy throughout the day everyone's been you know having your time asking things off you You don't feel like you've had any time for you and then people will go to bed later at night so they can kind of have that hour of scrolling or watching netflix where they can be like no one's really getting hold of me i don't need to do anything for anyone else and it's not even that, that they find that task that enjoyable it's just because they feel like i'm doing something for me um, and no one else is like asking me for my time mm. and I found that was really interesting I was like yeah I definitely see that especially with a lot of like my mum clients is that they're going to bed quite late and I'm like why are you doing it you know it's not good for you it's like you're going to bed at 11 30 because you're just sitting there for another hour and really what it comes down to is just about having an hour to themselves because they don't feel like they've had that throughout the day which then I guess comes back to obviously mindfulness and boundaries and patterns yeah. are up yeah oh, that's interesting yeah I mean 
it's hard to also unwind that habit because people are so used to going to sleep with a phone next to them because they have that on their alarm and, you know, it just it all links in. So one of the ways that I got rid of using the phone in like there's just a rule. There's no phone in my bedroom. My alarm is out in the living area. Google does her thing. She wakes me up and then I yell at her. I'm like, hey, Google, stop. And she stops. So I don't see a screen in the morning, um, you know, until, you know, 20 minutes later or whatever it might be. Um, But, yeah, it's really really important to start to at least recognise that. And I think that it's good that people are doing these kind of podcasts so we can bring that awareness to people and be like, actually, it's a bit of an issue. (laughs) Um, So you know, that downtime in the evening is really important, but it's almost like, do you really need to be scrolling or could you be reading a book? Yeah. Or could you just be like chilling out in your room with a candle and like nodding off? Love that. Yeah, yeah no no phone in your room, buying an alarm clock, another just fantastic little strategy that's very easy to implement. So yeah, yeah. perfect. I'd forgotten about that one. Mm. Kat, where can people find out more about you, um, your resources, your content and inquire to, to work with you if, if needed? Yeah. Um, easiest is my Instagram, Macros Muscles Mindset. Um, the website's the same, macrosmusclesmindset.com.au. Um, easy ways to connect with me through there. I would also suggest if you're looking at knowing more about binge eating disorder in particular, going into Spotify and typing in Kat Yanakis, Y-I-A-N-N-A-K-I-S, it'll come up with 10 to 12 of my you know, podcasts with people and you'll see specific ones about binge eating disorder. So um, that's where I would consider starting. Amazing. And by the time this comes out in three, four weeks time, um, we'll obviously hopefully have some collaborative places where there's some some content too. So yeah, yeah. I'm very excited for people to, to share that. So for anyone listening that goes, yeah, I feel like I've, or, or watching, I feel like I've yeah, seen Kat somewhere else, then you probably would have done at, at some point. So this is also the Kat that, yeah, you'll see some Instagram announcements about. So that's exciting. Fabulous. Cool, Kat, thank you so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. It's been great. That was incredible. I feel like it was just one amazing little soundbite section after soundbite section. So we're going to be able to make so many great pieces from within this as well. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on and sharing that. Fabulous. If you've enjoyed today's episode, it would be amazing if you could do us a massive favour and leave us a review and even if possible, a comment. The reason why this is so useful for us is it allows us to know which type of content and which guests are best going to be relevant for you and your goals so that we can continue to make the podcast even better for you in the future. Thank you so much so far for all of your support on the Women's Wellness Show.